Our scripture this morning comes to us both from Exodus and from the book of Isaiah. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know, and so they will be put to shame. Who would fashion a god or cast an image that can do no good? Look, all its devotees shall be put to shame. The artisans, too, are merely human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand up. They shall be terrified. They shall all be put to shame. The ironsmith fashions it and works it over the coals, shaping it with hammers and forging it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a stylus, fashions it with planes and marks it with a compass. He makes it in human form with human beauty to be set up in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Then he makes a god and worships it, makes it a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over this half he roasts meat, eats it, and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, ah, I am warm, I can feel the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, save me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they comprehend, for their eyes are shut, so that they cannot see, and their minds as well, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, now shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? (laughs) He feeds on ashes, a deluded mind has led him astray, and he cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a fraud? This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Chancel Choir, for the for the wonderful music. And I want to thank Andrew and friends too for the service this past Wednesday. I know many of you were there in the chapel. We had a great turnout and a an amazing moving service of worship. There will be more of those models of modern worship, and I would encourage you when you see and hear those being announced that you make plans to be here. It was a, was a great evening for all of us who were able to be here. It had been an unusually lengthy service of worship. The preacher had felt led to preach on all 10 of the commandments in one service, and that's exactly what he did. And did he ever bear down on his flock, gave him a hard time. 
Monday morning in the local cafe just off the town square, several folks were sitting around and talking about worship the day before. And some were overheard to remark that they had never, ever heard that preacher shuck the corn like he had done that day with such vim and vigor and vitality. He was lit up. Immediately following that Sunday service at the back of the sanctuary, one of the old timers there shook the pastor's hand, looked him square in the eyeballs and said, well, brother, at least I ain't never made no graven image. I don't suppose any of us have ever made a graven image either, have we? You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The familiar older King James Version simply reads, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. The second commandment, and we are taking them one by one for, for ten Sundays we began last week. But the second commandment prohibits all forms of idolatry. No image of the deity is to be made. And they took that to a great extreme back in the day, even on the Hebrew coinage. There were no images of persons or animals, no living creature on a coin. That was considered a graven image. And so the coinage would have flowers or plants or something else like that, but no graven image, no persons, no animals. The commandment is not directly, not only directed against the religious practices associated with the temple and Canaan or anywhere else. More fundamental is the conviction on the part of the Israelite community that God cannot be, God cannot be controlled by women and men. The creatures do not pull the creator's strings. The making of images is designed to express more than an act of worship and praise and devotion. It arises out of the desire to ensure the blessing and the protection of the deity who is represented by something in the form of wood or clay or stone. And although the ancient folk were able to distinguish between the deity and the deity's representation, such a distinction can be difficult to maintain and to maintain in practice. The prohibitions against idolatry throughout the Old Testament have been of inestimable significance in preserving the children of Israel and keeping them together as a people of God. They had to be aware of this. God is not to be coerced or tricked or manipulated into only blessing God's people and condemning people who were outside the children of Israel. God is not handled in that way, so to speak. God remains free and sovereign over any images that people have of God in any ways that people seek to worship God. The making of the idols was a common practice in the ancient world. I think most folk know that. When I was in Israel in the Holy Land, and it's been a long time, uh, Mickey and I want to go. I want to go back. But it was 1994. And we, by we, I mean the group of folks that I was traveling with, we saw some genuine idols. And the first day that we toured in Israel, we stopped at a place called Caesarea. And on a pedestal, there's a large 
old, old, old stone foot. Just a great big foot. And our guide told us that the foot was from an idol. And somewhere in a box at the house, I have a picture of that foot. And I kept expecting that foot to show up in a Nike commercial with a giant Nike shoe on it. And, and I had the caption already, but they never called me and asked about it. The caption would read, don't be idle, just do it. I can't imagine why that never, <laughs> never made it. But judging from the size of this foot, the idol to which it was attached must have been a huge stone figure. But all it could do was stand there. It could provide no help to its friends. It could provide no harm to its enemies and to its foes. Perhaps if that big stone foot was dropped out of a window, second story or above, and it fell on somebody, it could do a little bit of harm, but so could I if I was dropped out of a window on someone. So I have no supernatural powers, neither did this idol. And then on our last full day in Israel, we were down around the ancient towns of Ashdod and Ashkelon, down on the southern part of the land, and that's where the Philistines had settled, Goliath's old stomping grounds. And it's interesting, the archaeologists say that the skeletons that are unearthed down there, where Goliath came from, are generally longer, larger than the skeletons that are unearthed in other parts of the land. But in that area, a Philistine temple had been unearthed, and there were several stone idols around this temple, or what was a temple. They were just standing there. And it was my turn to conduct a devotional service to preach for a few minutes to the group that I was with. And I made the remark that I had never preached surrounded by idols. And my greatest fear was not speaking in front of the idols, but speaking in front of my bishop who was also there and who was very much alive and who had much more authority over me than any of these idols that were designed by human hands. It was a, a different kind of setting, a different feeling. No idols. This commandment would certainly help to set the children of Israel apart from the surrounding nations and cultures. The passage we read a few minutes ago, or that Andrew read from the book of the prophet Isaiah chapter 44, is a satire. It's aimed at those who would make, who would design, who would carve these idols and worship them. There are those who consider it one of the most biting satires in all of literature. And its description of the idol maker has become a classic. The prophet describes a guy who cuts down a tree and chops it down, saws it into, splits the tree into half and into logs and uses those to build a fire and cook his dinner. And with the other half of those logs, he carves himself an idol. And upon completion of the project, he prays to it and he says, for you are my God. You can almost hear the prophet snickering. Isaiah is having some fun at the expense of every idol maker around. The misguided fellow never stops to consider, hey, it's just a hunk of wood. It's just a piece of a tree. And it fell at my feet. And it becomes fuel for my fire. And how can the other part of it become a God to whom I pray? It's just a piece of wood. 
Shall I fall down before a block of wood? I mean, this guy would have had a ball, wouldn't he, in Noonan about four months ago. In all fairness, though, this is a one-sided argument. Israel's neighbors, all of whom practiced idol worship, would never have agreed with Isaiah's simplistic assessment of their religious practices. The carved object was never meant to be their God, only a reminder of their God. Yet even so, Isaiah was correct in his rejection of idolatry. We all know, we all admit in our more honest moments, that we, that an aid to worship can sometimes become for us an object of worship. It's not always a conscience, obvious process by which an aid to worship becomes an object of worship. It just sort of happens. And more often than not, it's a subtle, gradual kind of thing. And we don't realize what's happening until it has somewhat of a hold on us. And if we were to be accused of worshiping idols, we would become defensive and angry and want to push back against someone. Some examples of aids to worship that have become objects of worship. And bear with me for just a moment. Don't throw me under the church bus. Just we can talk more about this later if you like. But one thing that's an aid to worship, that become an object to worship, if we're not careful, is the Bible. The Bible contains words about God and words from God that point us to the living word of God, who is Jesus the Christ. In the pages of the Bible, as we read and we study and we pray, we come to understand who God is and why God alone is worthy of our worship. But if we're not careful, we begin to worship the book instead of the subject to the book. Some folks have used the term bibliolatry, don't hear it often, when we worship the Bible and not the triune God who is revealed by the Bible. So we need to, to be cautious. And then another, and we see it everywhere, we saw it, or I thought of it a lot when the Cathedral of Notre Dame burned a few years ago. Church buildings can be an example of an aid to worship that can become an object of worship if we're not careful. And it's not difficult to understand how this happens. Church folks everywhere invest an awful lot of their time and resources and energy into the physical structures where they gather. And significant, life-altering, transitional experiences happen within these walls and, and other walls of worship and within parish halls and Sunday school classrooms. And it seems to me it's only human to become attached to those structures where we gather and where we worship. Those permanent places and specific spaces. But when buildings designed by human hands become objects of worship instead of aids to worship, then it can be difficult. I was looking at a past book of Acts, chapter 17 and, and verse 24, that helped me comprehend this a little bit. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines, shrines made by human hands. Buildings can point us to God, but to worship a space, a physical space, anywhere, we need to be careful. 
And then ritual and liturgy, which is an aid to worship, can become an object of worship. And one of the undebatables in this world is that we are creatures of habit. Given a choice, we'll take our prescribed change in small doses, thank you. That creature of habit thing kicks in with church too, doesn't it? We clergy and laity become comfortable with certain orders of worship and certain hymns and certain prayers and certain ways of doing things that are easily recognizable and any kind of change, if we're not careful, becomes uncomfortable and unsettling. You see how easy it would be for our liturgy, for our worship to become an object of worship instead of an aid to worship. And there are many other things. You'll recall that it was a violation of this second commandment that caused Moses to throw down and break apart the original stone tablets on which were written the Ten Commandments. And we talked some about that last week when we considered, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol, but that's what the children of Israel did often. And in Exodus 32, a story, I think we alluded to it last week and may mention it again a time or two. Moses had been up on Mount Sinai in conversation with God and he was up there a long time and people got impatient. Imagine that. People got impatient with Moses not coming back down. They were weary of waiting. So they gathered around Moses' brother Aaron and they said to him, come make gods for us who shall go before us. As for Moses, we don't know what became of him. He went up the mountain, said he was going to talk to God and we haven't heard from him in a long time. So Aaron, who had apparently taken complete leave of his spiritual senses, told all the people to bring their gold jewelry and stuff to him. And they did, and melted it down and made this golden calf. And the calf was proclaimed as the God who brought the folks out of Egypt. That's how easily they were swayed. That's how short term their memories were. Aaron built an altar and he proclaimed the festival and they began to party in, in a big way. And then the Lord said to Moses, get on down the hill now, fast. Your people, notice God didn't say my people. He looked at Moses and said, your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, they've all turned away from me. I'm prepared to waste every last one of them and start over again with you, Moses. Let's be done. Let's clear the slate and start over. But Moses stepped up to the plate on behalf of his people and pleaded with God not to destroy the people who had been rescued from bondage in the land of Egypt. And the Lord God had a change of mind. Moses hurried down the mountain, two tablets in hand. And as soon as he saw what was going on with the people, and when he spotted that image, that idol, that golden calf, he lost his temper. And he threw the tablets down and he broke them into hundreds of pieces at the foot of the mountain. And then this is significant, I think. Moses took the calf that the people had made. He burned it. He ground it into powder. He scattered the powder over the water. And he made the people drink the water. And it doesn't take a lot of imagining to imagine what eventually became of their idol. You shall not make for yourself an idol, a, a graven image. The book of Genesis reminds us we're created in God's image. But to live a life that conforms to our 
creation is difficult. In fact, it's so difficult that we are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of that image. So instead of being like God, we try to recreate God too often in our own image. A lot easier to make God like ourselves than for us to become like God. Horace Bushnell was a college student, believed that he was an atheist, and one day a voice seemed to say to him, maybe not a spoken voice, but one of those voices within our heads kind of leading us, like we all hear those sorts of voices, I think. And the voice said, if you do not believe in God, what do you believe? And Bushnell answered back, he said, I believe there's a difference between right and wrong. And the voice seemed to say, are you living up to the highest that you believe? No, he said, but I will. And that day he dedicated his life to his highest belief. And years later, obviously there was a great change in him. Years later, after he had been pastor of one local church for 47 years, he said, better than I know any person in my church. I know Jesus Christ. And when he began conforming his life to his beliefs, instead of making his beliefs conform to his life, then he was led to a realization of the living God. That kind of realization leads us to what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Christ is the image of the invisible God. In Christ, what had been broken in us was mended. What had been distorted in us became harmonious. What had been partial for us became whole. So those, hopefully each of us who are gathered here or listening in today, who know Christ, do not make images of God because we believe that the image of God is being restored in us. Maybe one day all of us will be able to say to our God, well, at least I never made no graven image. I didn't need to. Image. Imagine that. Amen.